0: Welcome to the Cornerstone Baptist Church podcast. My name is Justin Wheeler. I am the preaching pastor for Cornerstone, and today we are in week eight of our journey through the Heidelberg Catechism. Today I'm going to be discussing with you questions 24 and 25. Just two questions this week, but they are pretty significant questions. This may actually be one of the longest podcasts we've done so far, because this week we're going to talk about one Christian doctrine that stands out as uniquely Christian. This week we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. So let's go ahead and get started. Question number 24. How are the articles divided? And the answer? Into three parts. God the Father and our creation. God the Son and our deliverance. God the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification. Now, this question is a follow-up to the one that we looked at last week regarding the articles of the Christian faith that make up what a true Christian must believe in order to have true faith. The articles are contained within the Apostles' Creed. As we read uh, through this creed, you might have noticed there, there was an intentional division within its structure. The division within the creed is marked out by the statements... I believe, and this statement, I believe, occurs only three times, and in each one of those um, occurrences, right behind it comes a statement about God. For instance, I believe in God the Father, or I believe in God the Son, or I believe in God the Holy Spirit, and this threefold division helps to communicate what we understand uh, about God, and it serves as a foundation for our Christian theology, and it's this. God has always existed as one God, and yet at the same time, He exists as three distinct persons. The theological term that describes this is Trinity, and this doctrine is one of the most unique and most important in all of Christian theology. In fact, Christianity rests on this mysterious doctrine of the three-in-oneness of God, And because it's so mysterious and so difficult for us to wrap our minds around, there are many people who think that we should just uh, get on with it, that that we should leave this discussion to the theologians. But, But here's the issue, and here's why we can't do that. If we are going to truly know and love and worship God, then we're going to have to understand Him as He has revealed Himself to us. And what that means is we're going to have to understand and make sense out of this Trinitarian idea. We need to know what He's like. We need to make sense out of what we read in the Scriptures. We're going to have to try to understand His three-in-oneness and why it's important for us. But wait a minute. Why? Do we believe that this Trinitarian language is the right way to think about God? Well, let's look back at question 25. Since there is but one God, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And the answer, because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one and true and eternal God. Now, there's a lot for us to unpack in question 24 and 25 and the answers that correspond to that, but it's really important for us to do so. Let's start with perhaps the most basic question and one of the most important questions. Where is the doctrine of the Trinity found in the Bible? Well, Trinity means triunity. It means three-in-oneness. It was a term that was originally used by the early church father, Tertullian. And while the word Trinity is never found in the Bible... The term is used to try to summarize what the Bible teaches about God, about the three persons that are identified as the one God of the Bible. The word Trinity is used as a way to try to hold together really two ideas about God that we find in Scripture His unity and his diversity. And and I'm just going to give you some more theological language here. There are five notions or five assertions that are typically used by theologians throughout the centuries to explain um, what the Bible teaches about God. And here are those five notions. Number one, the Bible teaches that God is one, Number two, the Bible teaches that God is three. There's that three in oneness. Number three, the Bible teaches that the three persons are each fully God. Number four, the Bible teaches that each of these persons is distinct from the other. And number five, the Bible teaches that these three persons are related eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here's what I want us to do with the rest of our time together. I want us to take each of these five statements and um, just work through them. So first, God is one. That's the first notion or assertion of this Trinitarian theology, and it relates to what we read in the Bible. The Bible is abundantly clear that there is only one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4, "'Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one.'" In the Ten Commandments, we read this, Exodus 20 and verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, this is very important for us to understand. As the pages of Scripture fold and as we uh, re- it is revealed who this God is, we understand Him to be one And yet, at the same time, we have to recognize that our God has revealed himself to exist in some form of a plurality. And we can see evidence of this all the way back in the language of the creation account in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And then after Adam and Eve sinned, we read this in Genesis 3.22. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, what is going on in this particular passage? Let us make man in our image. Man has become like one of us. As we read these passages, we're trying to get our minds around who God is, and we understand that in some way, God is engaged in a dialogue with another person. And it's not an angel that he's talking to, because man wasn't made in the image of an angel. Man was made in the image of God. The best explanation that we have about this is that God was in counsel with himself. And within the Godhead, more than one person exists. There is what we might call a divine plurality and within this paradigm we see that there's a unity of purpose there's a unity of essence but a diversity of persons now at this point in scripture it's not even clear how we should understand this diversity Uh, At this point, we have no idea how many persons we should understand to be within that Godhead. It's not until later on that this Trinitarian theology is developed, and it's really developed most clearly in the New Testament, even though there's plenty of things that point to it from the Old. But in the New Testament, we see that each person of the Godhead is revealed more fully and affirmed more clearly as full deity. And so we start off with this first notion that God is one, united in essence and purpose. But now let's look at the fact that God is three. In the New Testament, it is a settled doctrine that three persons exist within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This became clear to the New Testament authors because in their lifetime, they saw the Son and the Holy Spirit come into the world, and they recognized them as full deity, Now, the whole story of this begins in Matthew chapter 2. And Matthew 2 tells us the story of how Mary came to be pregnant with Jesus. He wasn't conceived in the normal fashion. He was conceived, according to Scripture, by the Holy Spirit. Now, we've never read anything quite like this in the Bible. We've seen prophecies about a great king who was to be born of a virgin. But this is a little more than we might have expected And it won't do for us to simply dismiss the biblical authors as barbaric people who didn't understand, you know, how babies came to be. Even then, the people knew that this didn't make natural sense. They knew that it was not normal. It was supernatural, and a miracle, by definition, is a supernatural occurrence when God disorders the natural order of things. And the individuals who were close to this story, even the individuals who were writing this down by the inspiration of God, they knew that what was taking place was not natural. They understand that when Jesus entered into the world, he entered into the world in a unique and in very much a mysterious way. We know that the Spirit of God was involved in his life. But it's not until we turn the page to Matthew chapter 3 that we see something take shape that has been a mystery up to this point. In in Matthew 3, I'm going to read verses 13 through 17, and, and you'll see it take shape here. It says this, and then Jesus came from Galilee, so he's grown up, he's an adult at this point, he came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you and and you're coming to me? But Jesus answered him saying this, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." And then John, or he, consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. He was taken up out of the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God. That's in capital letters. The Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, "'This is my beloved Son,' with whom I am well pleased. Now, this is an amazing account that brings clarity to the issue of, okay, if God exists in a divine plurality, how many persons does God exist within? Well, here's all three of those persons. God the Father speaking from heaven about His own Son and the Spirit of God descending upon the Son and resting upon Him. This is an amazing passage of scripture that gives um, vision to our understanding of the person of God existing as three in one. Now, before you dismiss this account as some spiritual experience rather than an actual experience, I want to point out that this same account can be read in Mark chapter one, in Luke chapter three, and then we even see the same story in John's gospel but we don't read it as it took place at time. We read it as a testimony that came from John. In John chapter 1, and verse 32, we read this. John bore witness saying, I saw this. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. I saw it remain on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then John concludes that section in verse 34 saying, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Okay, the third notion is that each of the persons within the Godhead, within this Trinitarian Godhead, is distinct from the others. And we see that in this passage. Here in this one moment of time, we have three members of the Trinity performing three distinct activities. God the Father is speaking. God the Son is being baptized and receiving the loving support of His Father. And God the Spirit is descending from heaven to rest upon and give strength to Jesus for the ministry that lies ahead. They are they are distinct from one another. Now, J.C. Ryle commented on this passage by saying, We may regard this as a public announcement that the work of Christ was the result of the eternal counsels of all the three persons of the Blessed Trinity. It was the whole Trinity, which at the beginning of creation said, Let us make man. It was the whole Trinity again, which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, Let us save man. All right, the fourth notion is that these three persons are each fully God, and and we see that even at the end of Matthew's gospel, right? Um, Jesus is about to send his disciples out into the ministry that he's called them into. Uh, He says to them, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So once again, we see Uh, one God, three distinct persons, this Trinitarian formula is just flowing through all of the New Testament. The church understood that the Father was God, that Jesus was God, and that the Holy Spirit was also God. One unified God existing eternally in a relationship as three distinct persons. And that's the fifth notion, that these three persons are related eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So why do we believe all of this? Well, we believe this because that's the best way we can make sense out of what we see in the Scriptures. And before we really move on entirely and and close down this week, it's not just in the Scriptures that we see this. It's it's not just in the Heidelberg Catechism that we see this. It's not just in the Apostles' Creed that we see it. We see this throughout uh, the the formation of the early church, um, even in other creeds of early Christendom. The Athanasian Creed, for instance, reads this way. Now, this is the Catholic faith, and that word Catholic there is lowercase. It's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. It's, it's a word for universal. Now, this is the universal faith. This is the faith that is held by all of those who claim to know Christ, that we worship one God in Trinity. And the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person; the person of the Son is another; and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. And that's a beautiful statement. That's really getting at the heart of our Trinitarian understanding of God. And Kevin DeYoung, commenting on this particular creed, he writes this, the two key words here are essence and persons. When you read essence, think godness. All three persons of the Trinity share the same godness. One is not more God than the other. None is more essentially divine than the rest. When you read persons, think a particular individual distinct from the others. Now, we use these terms in this way Because we're trying to find a way to express the relationship of three beings who are fully and equally God, but not three separate gods. And we have to use all of these words and all of these symbols because our finite minds simply cannot accurately conceive the being of our infinite God. We're like newborns trying to baby talk and babble our way through an explanation that is far beyond our ability. But the the question is this, why do we believe that our God is triune? Well, because that is what the Bible tells us. That is the way God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And, And here's what that means for us who believe in this God and trust in this God and believe by faith in Christ that we've been reconciled to him. When we come to faith in Christ, we are not simply being welcomed as Jesus's friend, as awesome as that is, but we are actually being welcomed into the Trinitarian love the Trinitarian relationship that has existed from everlasting to everlasting. And that's a pretty amazing thought. So thanks for joining me today for this week's installment of our journey through the Heidelberg Catechism. I hope you'll join me again next week as we look at Lord's Day 9 together and we discuss question number 26. If you want to learn more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at CBC Wiley. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cornerstone Wiley. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play to stay up to date on all the new content. Thank you so much for listening.